The sky has cleared after the rain and <clears throat> the fogginess that was here the last few days. And it's an incredible color in the sky at sunset time. Did any of you see it? Amazing colors some of these days, the sun going down. That nearest star in the sky. As I was coming over, I took a look up to see see the stars a bit, and it's it's a bit hazy, still a lot of moisture in the air. Not able to see too many stars, but some of them are up. Could just see the Pleiades this time of year, this time of day. Orion is rising, preceded by the Pleiades, and Taurus is there, and Aldebaran, one of my favorite stars. And this time of year, around now, uh, the Andromeda galaxy is pretty much directly overhead. It's the most distant object uh, visible to the naked eye. It's a galaxy two and a half million light years away, made of three trillion, no, a trillion stars. Is anybody in here able to even wrap their head slightly around a trillion of anything? I mean, I don't even know how many zeros it takes to write a trillion. Maybe there's a mathematician here, you know, it's, it's a bunch of them. And it's big, you know, if you could see all of it in the sky, we can make out a, a fuzzy patch and you can't see it unless you, if you look directly at it. <laughs> Some nights if it's really clear, but you usually have to look a little off to the side so that the peripheral uh, vision catches it. But it's about as big across as I think it's either five or seven full moons worth of width. It's a big, giant thing. And if you could see it, if the light wasn't so faint, it would be this, it's an incredible spiral shape. And apparently, some point, not next year, but somewhere down the line, it will collide with the Milky Way and there'll be an even bigger galaxy formed But when we look up at something like that, it's, we're seeing the way it was two and a half million years ago. I mean, it might not even be there anymore. Even the nearest star after the sun is, it's, if we see it, you can see it in the southern hemisphere. It's a little over four uh, light years away. So the light from that is f four years old. And none of those things, they might not any of them be there anymore. <laughs> I mean, that's so weird. Like, the scale of things is so huge. These are relatively near objects, right? With these fancy telescopes like the Hubble, they're looking at things that are 13, more than 13 billion light years away. So the reason they like to do this is because they're looking back in time. 
We're looking back in time. It's this time machine if you look up. And in a way, you know, everything we see, we only see it ending. (laughs) It's kind of always a little bit of a time machine, but it gets very clear when you look up at a star. So what's time gets really weird then, because everything's happening just right now. Like we talk about present moment, that's what we're, we're into present moment stuff in meditation, right? And really everything is only, that's all there ever is. The past is a thought in the present, the future is a thought in the present. There's nothing but that. But the present is two and a half million light years old. How do you reconcile that? There's some uh, clarification from T.S. Eliot and Bert Norton in the Four Quartets. Time present and time past are both, perhaps, present in time future, and time future contained in time past. If all time is eternally present, all time is unredeemable. What might have been and what has been point to one end, which is always present. Or say that the end precedes the beginning, and the end and the beginning were always there, before the beginning and after the end, and all is always now. Hopefully that that cleared it up. And I, it's, I, I love looking at these distant ancient things like this galaxy. I mean, it's, maybe it's still up there. It can really, it makes, it kind of stops the mind in a way. It's like the thinking mind can't, can't land there very easily. And so it can bring this sense of wonder in, into the mind and, It can, it can open the heart in a way. Points us to something beyond our usual way of looking at things. I mean, starlight, what is light? Scientists have a really hard time pinning it down. They talk about photons, but they have no mass. I don't think they actually exist as a thing. And they can be measured in different ways. If you look at it this way, it's a wave. If you look at it this way, it's a particle. The, the, the experiment you run on it determines how it appears. It's hard to say there's anything there. It can be measured in terms of um, as qualities of energy, of momentum, of pressure. But is there any thing there? It conveys information. You could think of light as a vehicle for conveying information. There's look up at the sky and we see how what the Andromeda galaxy was like two and a half million years ago. You know, light carries information, contacts through the eye door if we have a functioning eye and then there's seeing consciousness that arises in, in relation to that, in response to that. And we, we look at stars in this sense of wonder and sort of what? What is it? 
and stretch the mind and open the heart. And, you know, there's so many ways that we kind of solidify who and what we think we are and who and what we think the world is and reality and all of that. Kind of collapse it down through our ideas about it all. And, and this view can be so woven into the fabric of our perception that we don't even see it. Not even aware that it's there. It's like a pair of glasses we're always wearing that we don't know we've put on. The beauty of this practice of meditation is that it can open us to uh, a world beyond, below the, our ideas and concepts and our beliefs about things and all that we think is true and all that we think we're capable of. And it's a profound possibility in that the way it can impact our life and understanding. And we've all seen this in different ways. And just like, like light, it's hard to say exactly what it is or if it even is a thing. What is the mind? There's not much thingness to mind. If we go looking for it, we can't find mind as a thing. There's energy, we can, we can see qualities, a lot of mental energy, there's an energy, energetic field there. But really, the only way we can know mind is as process, it's a process, right? If we look at our experience, at what we know, in any one moment there's one of six things. There's a contact at one of the sense doors, sense bases. Contact at eyes, if the eyes are open and functioning. Ears, nose, mouth and tongue. The body and the mind itself. There's, there's contact and then consciousness arising, passing away, arising, passing away. This is, this is mind, it's more, this process is really what we see. Contact and knowing. So, so mind is, is this process. We tend to attribute substance and thingness to that and then we lay claim to it as, as our own. It's my mind. Where is it? You know, we, we often tend to think it's somehow related to that brainy in there, little brainy inside the skull. In other parts of the world, they would say mind the base of the mind is at the area of the heart. Are they wrong? It's actually inside there, <laughs> the little skull I'm pointing at. Where, where's, where is it? Where does my mind end and yours begin? Where are the edges to it? What is it? So it's just, I think minding, it's process. We could say it's minding. Of course, mostly it's not minding its own business. It's, and it's just happening by itself. We're not doing it. Is anyone doing mind? Did you do a lot of minding today? Do you work that, have to work that baby? It's just happening by itself, right? It's not something we do. 
We observe mind, we observe body on retreat. That's what we're doing, this mind-body process and the way these things interact. That's, that's our field of exploration and meditation. And we, we, spend a, we get very intimate with it on retreat. That's, uh, it's a radical kind of intimacy that few people experience. I don't think anyone outside of these kinds of conditions really experiences it on the level that we do. This radical intimacy with our inner world, with the relationship of mind and body. And sometimes we like what we see there and sometimes we don't. And sometimes, every once in a while, the mind or the body or both kind of do what we want, behave in ways that we approve of. But a lot of the time they don't, do they? I don't know, maybe you're different than me in this regard. You know, and so often we're, we find ourselves struggling with some, something in experience, struggling with the body. It's inherently, these bodies are just not that comfortable to live in, are they? I mean, they're, they're okay, but just check it out. Anytime you're just sitting around, just notice how many times you do these little shifts. You know, go like, to a movie when you leave retreat, just watch, or sometime you're always kind of <clears throat> moving it around. Because it just doesn't take long before it gets kind of uncomfortable. <laughs> and the mind gets up to all these shenanigans and nonsense. I mean, you know, if we were, how about if we, if we could rig up a deal to play your mind over the PA system. You know, who would, or what if, who would volunteer? Not much chance. Plus, what if we did it all at once, all of them? Just, I mean, there's not that many of us in this room. Whoa. That would be kind of some incredible symphony, but it would be pretty, it'd be hard to listen to it. <laughs> Oh, man. I mean, you know, it'd be embarrassing at best. And down from there. (laughs) If I played my mind over the PA, like from this morning, well, there were moments when you might have said, ah, it's not bad. (laughs) You'd never have anything to do with me in this teaching role. (laughs) That's my guess, anyway. (laughs) I have to read these lyrics from this song. It's by Jimmy Dale Gilmore. He's a country musician. It's called, My Mind's Got a Mind of Its Own. I won't sing it. My mind's got a mind of its own. It takes me out of walking when I'd rather stay at home. It takes me out to parties when I'd rather be alone. Oh, my mind's got a mind of its own. I've been doing things I thought I'd never do. I've been getting into trouble without ever meaning to. I'd as soon settle down, but I'm right back up again. I feel just like a leaf out in the wind. I seem to forget half the things I start. I try to build a house and then I tear the place apart. I freeze myself on fire and then I burn myself on ice. I can't count to one without thinking twice. And repeat the uh, first uh, chorus there, which I won't do tonight. But they do seem to have a mind of their own, (laughs) these minds. I mean, did you decide today to uh, remember the... um, 
theme song from my favorites, uh, my three sons. Um, okay, <laughs> when you watch that in the early '60s, a stupid sitcom, <laughs> or you know, I won't sing the theme from Mr. Ed, but um, <laughs> but just mentioning it will arise for some of you. <laughs> I mean, I. You know, this happens. I was on retreat minding my own business. Suddenly, a horse is a horse, of course, of course. Like, I mean, did, anyway, <laughs> you get my point here. The Buddha once described the mind, there's in one, in the Anguttara he once said, the mind is luminous. Pabhasara citta. Abhasara citta. Citta, mind, mind, heart, and Pali. They don't distinguish. Pali doesn't distinguish mind and heart. Citta, Pabhasara means uh, bright, bright shi- brightly shining. Brightly shining mind. And in this, when he spoke in this way, he went on to say that there, at times it is obscured by what he called adventitious defilements. Adventitious means visiting. It means a thing that is not an inherent part of something. It's not intrinsic to the mind. These visitors, they're not, they visit, they show up. And this, this word defilement is a translation, the very most common translation of the Pali word kilesa. It's this catch-all term for, for the energies of of greed, hatred, and delusion is said to be the roots of suffering in the mind and the heart in our lives. And I think we have to be careful with this translation of the word kilesa as defilement. That doesn't sound real good. You know, we're just this walking vehicle for the defilements, this bucket o defilements cruising around. It, just doesn't sound real great. I think it's important to remember because defilement sounds bad, right? And and I think it's important that to remember that these energies are not wrong or evil or bad. I think a, a more realistic and useful way to look at these energies are the, we could say, the untrained mind's attempts to deal with the inherent fragility, unpredictability, unreliability, uncontrollability of, of life. Uh, the, these energies are, they're trying to help. They just, they're a little mixed up about what would actually be useful. The Teacher Tanisaro Biku goes by Tan Jeff. He he uh, spoke uh, to to something that seems really obvious, perhaps may seem obvious, but uh, really profound understanding in terms of this statement of the Buddha that the mind is has this inherent uh, luminosity. I don't know why. There's a lot of debate on why that word was chosen, but there's a certain uh, kind of pure quality in, implied there in my mind. Certain purity of mind. He said to, this is from Tan Jeff, to perceive, to perceive the mind's luminosity means understanding that defilements such as greed, aversion, or delusion are not intrinsic to its nature. 
Without this understanding, it would be impossible to practice. That's interesting. Why would it be impossible to practice? If, If these visiting kilesas were intrinsic or inherently part of mind, then, then how would we ever uh, be free of, of their influence? How would that be possible then? But they are just visitors. And so the freedom is a possibility. They, it's a reality that the mind could be free, that they, they could be uprooted from the mind, you could say. My example this morning with the, the old monk in, in Burma who said, ill will doesn't arise. It's not there. It's not in the mind stream. It doesn't come. So even though these uh, visiting energies may obscure this clarity, luminosity, brightly shining mind, they don't, they, they don't change its nature. So you could say part of what we do in practice is, is connecting to this luminous mind, rediscovering, you could say, who we really are beneath our deeply conditioned habits and patterns of reactivity. The Thai forest master Ajahn Man, who's Ajahn Chah's teacher, Ajahn Mahabua's teacher, a very famous uh, wandering forest monk the last century. He, he called the luminous mind, he said it's, he called it the primal mind. He said, the mind is something more radiant than anything else can possibly be. But because counterfeits, he used the words counterfeit for kilesa, come and obscure it, it loses its radiance like the sun when obscured by clouds. Don't go thinking that the sun goes after the clouds. Instead, the clouds come drifting along and they temporarily obscure the sun. Or they obscure the clarity of the sky. It's like that, the sky is still there, the sun is still shining. It's not gone when the clouds obscure it. It's not affected by them at all. It's still there just as it is. Meditators, when they know in this manner should do away with these counterfeits by analyzing them shrewdly. When one develops the mind to the stage of the primal mind, this means that all counterfeits are destroyed, or rather, counterfeit things won't be able to reach into this primal mind because the bridge making the connection will have been destroyed. Even though the mind may then still have to come into contact with the preoccupations of the world, its contact will be that like that of a bead of water rolling across a lotus leaf. A beautiful image. Ever seen the leaves of a lotus? The dew, water, they bead up or on other leaves and they they don't land, they don't they just roll off stick. It doesn't stick there. And there are times when we can experience, we do experience some connection to this sort of essential luminosity of the mind. You could say this essential nature that's 
already free, always was free, always will be, because that's its nature. We might touch into this in moments and we might lose sight of it. The obscuring energies may come in just because we lose sight of it doesn't negate this truth. And the forces of our conditioning and the habits of mind that, that, are, that give rise to these kilesas, they're really powerful. And, and maybe they've, we've been engaging with them maybe for lifetimes. And even if we say how many lifetimes within a single life, each moment is a life, birth, death, birth, each moment, a lot of those. It's not to be underestimated. This, we've been, the strength of them, and we've been engaging with them for a long time, mostly on their terms. They often, in the world, they've got the upper hand. A lot of evidence of that these days. But this training in mindful awareness gives us this possibility to start relating to these visiting defilements, kilesas, counterfeits on our terms rather than on their terms. We can shift the way we relate to them and we don't have to take them personally. We see that they're just visiting energies. They're They're just nature. They're just a part of nature the same way that mind is nature. And through this, there, then we, we start to reveal or reconnect with this inherent luminosity of the mind. It's always there beneath all our struggles. You could say this is our, our birthright in a way. We draw the meditation instructions in this, in the Theravada tradition at least, from this uh, one sutta, the Satipatthana Sutta, one of the most highly revered teachings, a discourse on the establishments of mindfulness. These four establishments of mindfulness, you could say four um, arenas for our, our focus, four ways of looking at experience, and, and they include everything. So there's nothing nothing left out of these, these four establishments of mindfulness. The third one, citta nupasana, mindfulness of mind. It's, it's one of the shortest of the three. I think it is the shortest. And it begins with this section of the teaching begins with a this rhetorical question the Buddha saying, and how practitioners does one abide contemplating mind as mind? The Buddha goes on with a series of instructions. One understands mind affected by desire as mind affected by desire. And one understands mind unaffected by desire as mind unaffected by desire. It goes on in the same way. One understands mind affected by hatred. One understands mind not affected by this, by delusion, by restlessness, by sleepiness, dullness, and so on. 
it's, it's so simple. We see if it's there or if it's not there. We see, we get a, it's this broad sort of um, seeing of the, of the, the, the like the humidity, <laughs> like the weather, what's the weather? What's the weather in the mind? See how they, they arise, how they condition the mind, their presence, their absence. The, the quality or state of the mind as determined by whether these things are there or they're not there. It doesn't say, if you don't like it, start struggling and get, work yourself up into a, tie yourself in knots. That's not in there. It's not part of that instruction. There's a great book that I know maybe many of you, maybe most of you are familiar with, uh, the book more than one now, but I'm thinking of the first book on the Satipatthana Sutta that Bhikkhu Analayo wrote. And he, he points to something interesting here in this teaching. It says, it's noteworthy that contemplation of the mind does not involve active measures to oppose unwholesome states of mind, such as greed or lust or anger. Rather, the task of mindfulness is to remain receptively aware by clearly recognizing the state of mind that underlines, underlies a particular train of thoughts or reactions. To remain receptively aware, to notice how it is. You know, why, why would that be the instruction? Shouldn't we try to get rid of these things if they're unwholesome? So the, the primary reason for this non-interfering receptive awareness, this, this attitude, just seeing the presence or, or the absence is that it deconditions our tendency towards either reactivity on one hand or suppression or denial on the other hand. So in a sense, you could say that the, the mental agitation and struggle and tension that we so often experience in regards to the contents of the mind is reduced and eventually overcome, not by struggling with it or denying what's going on there, but through this simple direct observation, through this process of recognition and acceptance. I've had some striking examples of this. One time I was, you know, the, the suttas, I'm focusing on this part of it, this first part of it tonight, but it goes on to say one knows a mind that is concentrated, one knows a mind that is not concentrated, one knows a mind that is vast and open, one knows, knows a mind that's narrow and constricted. A liberated mind, a mind that is not liberated. I was on retreat, doing a self-retreat at home, and I, and I was, my mind was, there was restlessness and it wasn't collected and I wanted it to be collected. I wanted it to be another way and it wouldn't do what I wanted. And then I remembered this teaching and I just remembered, oh, I don't have to fix this. I just have to know it's like this. And immediately, 
there was a letting go and struggle and tension, they just were gone. It's like, oh, this is the mind that is not concentrated. This is the mind affected by restlessness. No problem. There's not an inherent problem. Nothing in our experience is inherently problematic. So it points to, it's this relationship. It's how we're relating to it. That's where freedom or non-freedom are. That's where that happens, right? It's just like, just immediately things could open and relax. And we tend to take the contents of the mind personally and we so get so identified. We don't identify so much with the body perhaps. You know, we don't take pressure, or hardness personally quite so much. But the contents of the mind, you know, we identify with it, our thoughts and mind states. And, and usually we also move from that, unfortunately, to not only do we identify it as, with it as mine, but we also, beyond just saying that it's there, we tend to have this judging attitude that, that it's, it's wrong or bad, that it's arising and, and I am wrong and bad because it's arising as though somehow it's, it's our fault. Either something we're doing or something we didn't do. And that's why it's showing up. And if we were any good as a meditator, it wouldn't come. Right? And how often do we find ourselves falling into that? Even if we're, even if we know better, <laughs> still do it. Learning to relate to these without struggle from this place of receptive awareness, as Bhikkhu Analayo said, it's, that's the training. We see them for what they are. And, and this, it's like we, we deprive them of their fuel. <coughs> like a fire that's burning, we don't feed it with more wood. We deprive it of its nutriment because we feed them through identification and reactivity. And the result, when we remove that, that they, they start to lose their power. They start to go out. They start to die down like a fire when we take away its, its fuel. So when we relate to them on their terms, we take them personally, we fall into struggle. We, we, I maybe even act out those energies, the mind states that have arisen from them. We act it out. And when we feed them, they get stronger. It's like throwing more wood on the fire, adding fuel. So mindfulness gives it this po- us this possibility to start changing. We relate to them on our terms and we aren't feeding these energies. And, and thinking in all about all of this leads us to some really important considerations for us, critically, really. Because it's not just that these energies arise in the mind, but so often they, they lead to actions in the world and we see this all over. They, they're part of the motivation for our actions. Because all actions are born in the mind, right? They don't just happen there. All things are born in the mind. And if we look around the world, and, you know, s- there's so much avoidable suffering 
And we look and see all the violence and struggle, all the rest, wars, what's happening? There are these mind states, greed, hatred, confusion, they're giving rise to actions of body and speech. And the seeds of war are there, right, in our own hearts. You can see this right there. So for our own happiness, for happiness in the world, an understanding of this, how this works is really critical for us. It's crucial for our understanding on this really simple fundamental level. It's what's happening there. And as I was saying this morning in reflection for those of you who are here, this mindfulness, mindful awareness, sati, this, this changes everything. It makes everything possible. We can see these energies and directly, and, and we have a choice. If we don't see them, we don't have a choice. So we should be glad when we see them. Hello, little defilements. That's what I'm practicing these days. I say, hello, little defilement. Hello, little aversion. I say hello to joy too, same way. They come and go. They're trying to help. Thank you. Let's do something else, but you can come. We bring them along. Try some other way. And so just as there are these unwholesome, you could say unskillful, unwholesome roots of greed, hatred, delusion, and all the different ways they manifest, the hindrances and a lot of different specific ways they show up, there are the the wholesome roots, non-greed, non-hatred, non-delusion, or you could say generosity, love, and compassion, and wisdom, if you want to express them in the positive way. And I think in this uh, practice of mindfulness of mind, there's this implied, implicit understanding that in the absence of the unwholesome, the wholesome is there. Just naturally, it just arises. Because it's kind of a reflection of this luminous mind, you could say. So when we don't feed the kilesas and they start to die down, then the wholesome energies start to show up more. They arise naturally. And just this reflection of the nature of things. So the point of discerning wholesome and unwholesome is not to judge and blame the unwholesome, or take any of it personally, but we just see, see what's happening there and we see what leads to happiness, to freedom, to peace, and what doesn't, what leads to suffering in our lives, in the world. And it shifts the whole way we're relating to our, our inner world. Start to let go of reactivity, of struggle and denial and blame. And we see mind is this dynamic process. It's not some thing with some ongoing existence. It's not this way or that way. This mind right now, what's it like in there? It's never been here before. It might be luminous mind. It might be obscured. 
doesn't matter. We can know it, it's like this in any moment. And we train ourselves to see these energies just as visiting energies. We less, much less inclined to take it personally. And then this natural discernment that lets us see, see things in terms of what's wholesome, onward leading towards peace and freedom, what isn't. And it has such practical applications because then we can make, if we see it, we can make wise choices in terms of what energies we follow, what's worth cultivating, what we should abandon, what to feed, what not to feed. And it's a doorway to compassion because if we study our own mind and heart, we're studying everybody else's. And if we see how these things operate in our own mind and heart, we understand how they operate in everyone else's mind. And in some cases, it's really extreme. And this, this compassion is the doorway to living a conscious life and to taking actions in an effective way in the world. So this mindfulness, it's so powerful and so simple. Check it right now. Feel it, a taste for that. It just can totally radically shift the way we relate to things, to the challenges that come in our practice and in our lives and we can transform these things that seem like obstacles to our freedom into the very vehicles for understanding, for insight and liberation. And we start to simply know these things as they are in their nature. <coughs> See these visiting forces when they come and obscure the clarity of the mind, see them pass away. We start to know them for what they are. We start to know the mind or what it is. Start to touch this Ajahn Mun's primal mind, you could say, the luminous mind. So I'd like to end this evening with a, a few words from Sayada Utejaniya. Because the mind is covered by defilements, we are unable, unable to see Dhamma or to understand nature as it is. Whatever is happening in the present moment is nature, is Dhamma. Even defilements become Dhamma, become nature. Nature is arising, knowing is arising, and awareness is arising. Object and mind, object and mind. In nature, there is nobody there. Nature is not us, not them, not other. Nature is just nature. Dhamma is ever present and there is Dhamma talk everywhere. Nature is always teaching us Dhamma, but we are unable to hear. If we can see nature as it really is, the mind is free. We can sit quietly, 
just for a moment and then we'll we'll do a little chanting to end the evening in here Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.